to The Commercial Disco, the only show dedicated to exploring the great stories and people driving Australia's unique innovation and tech landscape. Now over to your host, James Riley. Welcome to The Commercial Disco. I'm James Riley, Editorial Director of InnovationOz.com. I'm speaking today with the founder CEO of Gilmore Space Technologies, Adam Gilmore. Welcome, Adam. Thanks very much, James. Good to be here. Look, uh, there's a lot of exciting startup companies around Australia doing lots of interesting things, but Gilmore Space is probably is my personal favourite right now because it's such a bold, interesting, ambitious thing to do. Just by way of introduction, congratulations, Adam. I think you've got the world's shortest LinkedIn profile. You've got 20 years at City in a nice, stable job where I think you got into a into the ranks of stable upper management and then five years now at this space startup company. Can you talk us through, well, a couple of things. Firstly, the genesis of Gilmore and what those first conversations with potential investors were like. What was the opportunity you were selling them in space? Okay, well, I think the, the short version of the genesis is I've always loved space. I've always looked at space with a keen interest, but I always thought it was a pipe dream. And the catalyst, I guess, for me getting more involved was in 2004, and this prize competition in the United States was won. And it was a space plane that went to space. And that was cool, but when I was a banker, the thing that really got me going was I found out that the investment into the project was only 20 million US dollars. And I would have guessed that would have been a half a billion dollars to achieve that outcome. So my takeaway was with a good team, an experienced team, the right vision, space doesn't have to be expensive. So the next part of the journey was I was living and working in Singapore and I approached the Singapore government and said, look, I want to start a space company here. And my initial plan was to make components of satellites because, you know, small satellites were starting to come around and um, there wasn't a lot of players that were making components for small satellites. Uh, so I went to the Singapore government and said, you know, can you give me some money to help start up? And they, they actually gave me a proposal, but in the proposal was you've got to get a commercial contract with a multinational aerospace company within six months of you starting the company. So I did a quick bit of research into that and I found out they're not going to give you a contract until you've tested the product in space. And then I can't remember exactly what the product I was doing, but I think it weighed somewhere between 20 and 50 kilograms. So I then got a price of how much that would cost to test it in space. And I think the price came back as $10 million. And I was like, that's crazy price. You know, if there are other companies that want to do what I'm doing, there's got to be a cheaper way of getting access to space. And that's when I focus on, okay, access to space is where it's all at. That's the the linchpin that connects everything together is how do you get to space? And so I said, all right, I'm going to figure out a way of getting to space as cheap as possible. And I, I read a couple of books that were fantastic talking about why rockets were so expensive and how to do it cheaply and design philosophies. And after I read those books, I was like, right, I've got a mission now. I've got to educate myself. So I spent at least five years flying all around the world working for Citibank just fastidiously reading research papers on anything to do with rockets and hybrid rockets and ablative materials and everything and anything you needed to know about space. 
And so by the end of that, in 2014, I was ready to start the company. And because I was a banker, I was paid pretty well. So I put the initial money into the company. So I actually didn't talk to investors until we had about 10 to 15 people in the company. We'd already test fired a whole lot of rocket engines and actually launched a rocket into the sky. So, you know, I got the company to a reasonably high TRL before I started talking to investors. And when I started talking to investors, the small satellite business opportunity had really become quite clear. So it was just a task of, okay, there's the business opportunity. It's massive. How do I get the technology to make a difference, to be different, and to really provide low-cost access to space? So there's a couple of things I wanted to, to drill into there. And it's quite incredible, firstly, that you started in Singapore. Quite incredible also that you've ended up, by the time you've launched, focusing on the launch vehicle. Quite prescient, really, given that where we've ended up today, those smaller satellite businesses you've said is booming, but that launch business is similarly really taking off. So we live in a uh, you know more volatile and uncomfortable times, I guess, politically, and there's lots of talk around sovereign capability. So you're expecting the commercial launch business to accelerate from that? Yeah, we are. I mean, sometimes you've got to be lucky, right? I think we got really lucky when all of these broadband constellations started to be developed. You know, so when OneWeb and, and SpaceX's Starlink and now Amazon Creeper system when they started launching, that's a massive business opportunity for us because those satellites go into particular orbits and to move from one orbit to the other is very expensive in terms of fuel. And once you've put all these massive constellations up there, they've got a lifespan of five to seven years and they start to, to die. So the service that we can provide with a smaller rocket is to take them back up in ones and twos to replace them so that the service doesn't get disrupted and it's uneconomical for a massive rocket like a Falcon 9 to take up a couple of satellites, but it's very economical for us to do it. So that market has evolved in the last three or four years and that's the primary reason why we've seen a lot of other rocket companies start up because they're looking at the same market as we are. Okay, I'm going to step back just a little bit. When you, when you started, you are in Singapore, you had approached the Singapore government, but you've ended up back in Australia. So... Just talk me through why did Australia become an appealing place? What was attractive here and how did you come to be here? Well, this is going to almost sound like a joke, but it's not a joke. You know, Singapore's a small place and, you know, we're testing rocket engines. So there wasn't a lot of places to actually test rocket engines in Singapore. And so, you know, I'm Australian, you know, I, I know Australia well. I thought there's got to be a lot of spaces in Australia that we can test our rocket engines. And so I actually ended up testing our, our first series of rocket engine at my parents' farm. So, you know, a lot of it was just the capability in Australia to do things that are loud and have a lot of fire and stuff like that. And then I kind of figured that, you know, there were a lot more avenues to attract funding and to get government grants here compared to Singapore. I think one of the great things that attracted me back to Australia was the R&D tax grant. I mean, that, that is a fabulous system to encourage people to do R&D activities. And I've actually been telling a lot of people in the global community, come to Australia in the early days of your company for the R&D tax grant. So that was another a big enabler for us. 
Yeah, that's amazing. And it is quite extraordinary that it does seem to be not under attack, but under a cloud right at the moment. I'm just going to step back again. When you left City, did your colleagues think you were crazy? Did your family think you were crazy? What was the, from a personal journey perspective, did, uh, did people kind of throw a lot of doubt on what you were trying to do? Kind of, but I think they were careful because I, I did a lot of crazy things at, at Citibank. You know, I, I, not like stupid things, but I said, right, I'm going to take this business from $20 million to $200 million. And everybody said, no, you're not. And I did. You know, so I had a track record of kind of doing hard things. So when I left the bank, most of my early investors were my fellow banking colleagues. I remember my global head of financial markets. I had a, a dinner with him at Changi Airport. And I said, you know, I'm leaving. I'd like you to invest in the company. And he said, I think you're crazy, but I'll, I'll give you a whole lot of money because I believe in you. That's a vote of confidence. Now, your, uh, your Series A investors, I think, was uh, Blackbird and 500 startups along with some... Yes, that's correct. Yes, yeah, so Blackbird and 500 were the first kind of investor believers in, in the company. So if we talk about the conversations with them, they were, they were investing in you, but you'd obviously sold them the vision of what the market would look like. Was it a tough sell into the Australian VC market? It was, you know, relatively, uh, I don't want to say immature, but, you know, it wasn't what it is today. Yeah, I think it was a much easier sell to Australian VCs than Singaporean VCs. I think, you know, we're deep tech you know, long time to market. I think Singapore investor community was very focused on software. So I was quite happy to, to see that some Australian VCs were looking at deep tech and had patience. And I think for Blackbird, their main objective was for companies that want to be billion dollar plus companies. You know, so they were very keen to know that I wanted to take the company to be a multi-billion dollar company. And I had a vision to do that and a plan. So I think that it fitted their kind of marketing, their model, and they were willing to, to take some risk. I mean, I just met up with Blackbird. I was down in Sydney just before Queensland closed the border, and I, I met one of the partners at Blackbird again, and I said, you know, in hindsight, you took an awful lot of risk in the company when we did our Series A, you know, because we didn't know a lot back then, and we know so much more now. But I said, you know, I'm glad you backed me, and I'm pretty confident, you know, I'm going to make you a big winner. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. Can I ask, I mean, it's a kind of sort of a weird time for everyone right now, but I imagine, you know, a, a weird time for a, a deep tech company, despite the fact that you've got these long lead times. I'm talking around COVID and uncertainty and, and the rest of it. Are you, just on the, on the investor side, are you looking for more investors now? Are you going to do another capital raise in the short term or are you pretty right? Yeah. No, we are. We, we're going to do another capital raise at the end of the year. You know, so initially when COVID struck, the investors saw stock markets collapsing around the world and the VC market got very uh, nervous. So there were a lot of calls around from you know, all the VCs to their portfolio companies, conserve cash, slow down, you know, you need to survive another two years. So we basically put the brakes on hiring people, put the brakes on any big investment, but things have changed around reasonably rapidly. And so we've just started accelerating again. Okay. And what, just from a strategic investor point of view, what, what are you looking for? Or who are you looking for? What kind of uh, backing do you want? Oh, we're looking for people that are connected. The space industry is, is very um, government-focused, defence-focused. You know, there's a lot of rules and regulations. There's a lot of politics around orbital launch vehicles. So, you know, we want to make sure we have investors that are well-connected in the community. 
All right. And it seems, I mean, for a person who came out of banking, I mean, I know like notwithstanding the amount of travel you did and research you did, you've got a fair, got a fair contact book yourself, including I think you've got senior NASA people on your advisory boards. Tell me about skills. You're a, you're a banker who's come into this market. Is it just fortuitous that Australia happened to have a bunch of people who were dying to get into some kind of a launch business? I mean, do we have these skills coming out of our ears or is it, are they? No, we don't. It was a real struggle. Basically, I had to hire foreign talent from almost the get-go. So we found kind of one propulsion engineer that was in Australia working in the hobby rocket industry. But then all the other expertise we've got is from international. So we've done a two-pronged approach. We've hired a lot of graduate students and then put on top of them foreigners that have been in other rocket companies. And that's worked out very, very well. So we've got people in the company that have been here four years now. And, you know, they can go toe-to-toe with any rocket engineer anywhere in the world in terms of their knowledge. So we're at a critical point now where I probably have 30 Australians with an average of three years of of really good rocket experience, not just rocket experience, but avionics, electrical stuff, software, all the different pieces that you need to put a rocket into space. And so we're in a good position. So, Sorry, total headcount now is? 55. Of which 30 are Australian engineer employees. Yeah, so we've probably got about 40 engineers in total, well, 40 to 42, and the rest of the support staff and marketing and accounting and stuff like that. And so of the 40-ish engineers, at least 30 of them are Australian. Okay. Now, talk to me about the collaborations that you have. I think you've got uh, University of Queensland, the University of Southern Queensland. Have I got that right? Yeah. Defence Science Group, so DSG and NASA. Yeah. So I guess to start with, just in terms of the Australian collaborators, are you collaborating with the universities to develop the skill or to make sure they're developing the skills that you need? Or is it a project-by-project fee-for-service basis to Gilmore? Like how, how are those things working? And how's the kind of technical transfer of skills working between academia and commercial launch business? Yeah, so the main reason we've been working with universities so far is project-based and it's really grant-based. So the government... You know, both the state government and the federal government like to attach grant money to, to make you work with the university on a, on a project basis. That's been quite challenging, actually. Um, universities work at a different pace than, you know, startup companies. So we've struggled to kind of get the outcomes we want out of universities at the pace we want them. Having said that, we have now just started to talk to universities about the skill set of their students. So I have a meeting with the Griffith University Vice Chancellor next week to talk about actual educational programs that they can do at the university that will give them job opportunities in our company. So it is interesting that through the various grants that you get and the various places that you get those grants, including DSG, and the Artemis program, I think, and the Australian Space Agency also I didn't mention before. It doesn't seem like a particularly efficient way to build a business, just given, I mean, from a government perspective. So if the government is placing their chips on the launch business as an important sovereign capability, you know, that kind of fragmented grants program probably isn't ideal from your perspective? No, it definitely isn't. I mean, We have been openly uh, critical to the space agency and the government 
about the giving a little bit of money to a whole lot of different people. Uh, you know, I think I have a strong view that, especially in the infancy of an industry, you've got to back the, the champions. And, you know, so far the space agency hasn't given out any money to any of the venture-backed space companies in Australia, which I think is a very uh, wrong decision to make because if you look at trying to grow the industry, if you're venture-backed, then you've at least got some smart people that say you've got a chance of, of doing well. You've got access to big pools of capital and any milestone that you get, you leverage into getting more money. So I like to tell a story. If I get a $2 million grant from the space agency, I can get $10 million of venture capital money on the back of that. You know, so you get five times the power. And, and what do startups do? They hire people. You know, so we've grown rapidly. We're at 55 now. We'll be at 60 by the end of the year. I think at the beginning of last year, we had 30 people. So we're growing fast. And so talk to me a little bit about defence. Obviously, you know, the technology that you're working on has applications in the defence sector. Space is uh, the new frontier, as they say. I mean, is that, a, is that a route to building better capability faster simply because of the need within that defence side? I think so. I mean, defence is kind of early days. I mean, they've come out and they've said, yeah, space is a big deal and we're going to put a whole lot of money into space and we love that. That's fantastic. We've started some proposals to defence about our technology, but it's still very early days. I think they're going to take 12 to 24 months to gear up to start allocating decent amounts of money to the industry but I'm definitely happy with the progress that I've seen so far. Uh, you know, three years ago, we literally would go to defence and we were told, you're crazy. So things have changed. Yeah, they certainly have. Can I, just in terms of being based in Australia, you obviously want to launch rockets from Australia, but is there a point where a company like yours has to leave? And I'm not, I guess I'm not saying for financial reasons, but maybe, you know, technical reasons or access to skill reasons. What, what is there a, a point where you would simply have to grow and move to a different market? Well, I mean, the biggest space market by far in the world is the United States. And it's a very lucrative market. The, the US government has, I'll throw out 20 different buying centers that invest in space and give space contracts out. You know, they've got a space budget that's probably $40 billion a year, US dollars a year. You know, so we, we kind of look at some of our competitors and, you know, they get a defense contract at the same technology readiness level. We are $45 million US dollars. And, you know, we get very jealous of that. So I think it's inevitable that we will conduct some business in the United States. I hope not to have to move the whole company over there. You know, I, I think in the future we'll probably operate out of the two, two countries. But when, when you say inevitable you would move part of the business there, are you saying that you'll conduct launches there or development there? Yeah, we'll launch there, we'll build rockets there, you know, we'll hire separate teams there. It's just, it's just too big a market. It's a massive market. Is there anything about the Southern Hemisphere, and you're talking to someone who knows nothing about space, obviously, but the Southern Hemisphere that, you know, as a place to launch rockets, is Australia becomes a, a good option? Well, it depends where you launch in Australia. So we've been campaigning with the Queensland government to set up a launch site in North Queensland, which they've announced that they're now going to pursue that. And that particular point is in, um, in Bowen near, near Mackay, and that is a very good place to, to launch rockets from. 
in terms of the ability to place satellites into orbit, it's significantly better than any of the US launch sites. So we, we've been talking to customers about being able to launch from there, and they're very excited about that opportunity. And they've put money up front? Who has? Uh, the Queensland government, is that what you're... Uh, they've invested a little bit of money. They're doing a due diligence study right now, so they're looking at environmental, uh, everything else. They're going to spend the next three months doing that. Right. I gather uh, these things aren't necessarily cheap. They're not as expensive as you think. You know, our estimates of an initial launch site is around $10 million. Okay. So you're raising money towards the end of the year. You're on target for a first commercial launch, I think, in 2022? Yes. Is that right? Yes. Um, you, you had a, uh, a test launch last year that One Vision suborbital that, that didn't necessarily go to plan. What are the big learnings from that one? Uh, we had extensive learnings from that. I think, you know, there's, there's many pieces of the puzzle, but it's a lot of work to actually just assemble uh, a launch vehicle in itself. You know, there's so many different components that have to be put together and tested and a test program that goes through it. We had a, a mobile launch platform that was quite extensive and very large, and that worked very, very well. And then after the failure, we did a very extensive uh, failure analysis and came up with, I think, 24 items that we want to go forward to make sure that we change the way we do things. You know, 24 major lessons learned. And we have a monthly meeting about those 24 lessons learned that will carry forward into the next vehicle. Okay, and then beyond the, the 2022 launch, what's the, the big milestones that you've got coming up? Uh, well, we've got a couple. We're, um, we're going to do a test flight of a, of a small vehicle uh, that's got all of our key technology and test our avionics systems before the end of the year, and then we're testing our main rocket engine um, before the end of the year. I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to start wrapping up. Adam Gilmore from Gilmore Space Technologies. I wanted to ask you, I don't know, this might sound like a strange question, but what do you think your biggest achievement is? And that, take that two ways, biggest personal achievement and whether it's associated with Gilmore or, or something else. And then for the company, the biggest achievement of the company to date. I think our achievements are yet to come. I'm going to be really happy when our first rocket goes into orbit and I will call that a mighty, mighty achievement. I think one of the things that I want to prove with that launch is Australians can do anything. And we can build anything. And I, I really get annoyed when I hear the you know, government say we should just stick to things that we're good at. And it's really farming and mining. I think we can look at other things and technology and be the best in the world. So I'm really looking forward you know, personally to when that rocket goes into space to say, well, there you go. We can do it. What people considered crazy is doable. So I guess as a website that looks at government policy, there's something I usually ask interview subjects, and that's, well, there's four questions. What does government do well? What does government not do well? What should government do more of? And what should government just stop doing? Like when you look at the policy environment, what's this government getting right, state and federal? And uh, Definitely, I think the space launches policy is a good policy. And I think the way they've cut it into a separate approval for a launch site versus a rocket, which is similar to the rest of the world, but I think they really got that right. Um, we're quite happy with that regulation. 
I think what they can do better is to target their spending on more sure things, you know, on companies that have been around for a long time and have developed good technology and have good teams. Well, it's been quite an incredible journey for Gilmore Space Technologies. It's incredibly exciting to have an Australian company that's operating at this level in what is, you know, what is emerging as an incredibly competitive global market for launch vehicles. I don't know, you must get out of bed in the morning fairly pumped to get on with the day. Is that the enthusiasm you had when you were sitting in Singapore as a banker? You've still got that for, for space? Uh, times 10. You know, I'm a hell of a lot more interested in this. Yeah, so I'm, I'm very excited. I want to get going. I want to get to space fast. You know, nothing is quick enough. Adam Gilmore, thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Commercial Disco. Please like, subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And head on over to our website, innovationoz.com, to check out our latest news and reviews focused on tech, innovation and policy. And reach out on our social media to ask any questions or be a guest on the show. Until the next time, this is The Commercial Disco, Wishing you a great week ahead.